Specialty Story, session number 189. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week, where I get to have amazing conversations with physicians about their specialty, why they chose it, what they like about it, what they don't like about it, what you should be thinking about if you're interested in it. If you enjoy these, don't forget to subscribe and also check out eshadowing.com, where I'm bringing on guests live and we're covering cases and much more. Today, we're talking to Dr. Kimberly Gordon Achebe a child and adolescent psychiatrist. She's also a program director. So we're gonna talk all about her role. And we start the conversation by talking about how Dr. Gordon Achebe first became interested in child and adolescent psychiatry. So that's a good question. Uh, and thank you for asking. I actually was one of those people who went into medical school thinking that I was gonna be a psychiatrist. So. Medical school for me was convincing myself not to be a psychiatrist and be something else, <laughs> to be a real doctor. As, as at the time, my family members thought about psychiatry as not being real medicine. And so I think what really triggered for me uh, a thought that psychiatry would be for me is when I was taking my pre-medical studies uh, at Xavier University, which is a historically black college university uh, that is number one in the nation for getting African-Americans into medical school. Uh, so in, in attending that school, it was very clear to me that, you know, biological sciences, if you were a chemistry major or a bio biology major, you definitely was going to get into medical school. Mm. Uh, so it was a little hard for me to decide to take a major as psychology. Uh, but when I did, I, I actually just really enjoyed abnormal psychology. It was, it was the first time that I felt like, oh my gosh, that would explain why when I Growing up, I was um, come from a very religious family, and we would have these tent revivals, as they say. And these tent revivals would bring people all across the state, all across the region, uh, together to worship. Uh, however, you know, the pastors back in the day, like they like to lay hands on certain people. Mm -hmm. I would notice that when certain people come in, particularly those with bipolar or schizophrenia, there was no laying up hands. <laughs> it was. It was strange. I mean, people would look at them like they didn't belong. People would ask, say things like, why are they here? You know, if you if you saw a woman who was dressed provocatively or who had so much makeup on and obviously looked strange, uh, but she was manic, uh, people would be scared and overwhelmed and didn't know what to do. And I remember thinking, oh, so the church can't do everything, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that was my little rebellious time when I was really questioning, uh, not necessarily my faith, but questioning you know, what does health mean for communities? And so uh, abnormal psychology just kind of explained all of that. Uh, and then, you know, of course, I had to make the decision between being a psychologist, which was my passion, or going to medical school and fulfilling the dreams that my parents had for me to be a doctor. Ultimately, I decided that psychiatry was the best of both worlds. And so I had to uh, basically grapple with attending four years of medical school and doing all the biological sciences so I could be uh, considered a real doctor, but also <laughs> uh, pursue my passion of becoming 
someone who um, addresses behavioral health and mental health and uh, psychiatric illness. Yeah, all all great things that that makes complete sense now looking looking at you on this side of things how, how you got here which is great what do you think is the the biggest myth or misconception around uh child and adolescent psychiatry well i think a lot of people don't understand that kids can have psychiatric illnesses uh you know most people probably think of it as just a behavioral thing so as a parenting issue or it's a educational issue. Maybe they just need more support in their schools. Uh, so oftentimes when young people develop symptoms like anxiety and depression, uh, people just feel like they're outgrow it or, you know, just give it a little bit more time. And uh, oftentimes we wait too late to address some of the things that would prevent uh, those symptoms from getting worse. Uh, I think another myth in child adolescent psychiatry is that child and psychiatrists just want to prescribe medications like ADHD medications. Mm. You know, uh, they just want to drug up my kid. <laughs> I sometimes hear that. Uh, but many child and psychiatrists work with psychologists and social workers and uh, other professionals, educators to, uh, you know, make kids, you know, engage in their communities and their schools and do not prescribe medications as the mainstay. Although that is something I do and I do very well and we do it safely and effectively, medications is not the first go-to in uh, child adolescent psychiatry. There's uh, other things to consider. But when medication is indicated, we prescribe. Yeah. What's the most important trait, you think, for someone to be a child uh, and adolescent psychiatrist? Patience. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think you have to be, in some ways, uh, very close to uh, the community that you know, the patients that you serve live in, in terms of understanding what their school systems are like, understanding what their communities may face to engage in mental health treatment. Uh, those are things that, you know, you may learn in medical school. Obviously, today we're learning a lot about social determinants of mental health and understanding that people are a product of where they work, live, play, worship, etc. Uh, but I think, you know, to be a really great child and adolescent psychiatrist, you really have to understand uh, the nature of development and what it requires to have uh, healthy uh, development and healthy attachments and healthy relationships. And, you know, and when parents fail or when systems fail, you know, how to engage people in correcting that in a way that feels safe and great for kids. Yeah, that was kind of what you just brought up when when parents fail. Uh, obviously, pediatrics, you're not just dealing with the child, you're dealing with the family and support structure around that child. How How is it uh, from a, a practice standpoint to to need to obviously talk to the patient and have the patient buy into everything that you're you're talking about, but then also make sure that that family and, and, and just support structure around the patient is there as well? Right. You know, I really think that child psychiatrists should be named family psychiatrists uh, for that reason. Uh, oftentimes I'll tell people I'm a community psychiatrist or I'm a family psychiatrist, I'm a developmental psychiatrist. But really what I'm saying is that, you know, when you meet a kid for the first time who suffer from, let's say, anxiety, uh, oftentimes part of the battle is actually really getting the parents to engage in treating their own anxiety if they have it. Or, you know. <laughs> 
better yet or understanding that that kid is not being oppositional or just not refusing to go to school. They really are uh, suffering. Uh, I think that that happens by rapport and relationships and really being uh, pretty clear from the beginning with the parents that we're there, we're in it together. Like I'm here for you and for your child. Now I, I can't be your psychiatrist. I can't be your therapist, but I definitely can guide you through the process of being, you know, a parent that's responsive and effective and managing whatever things that's going on with your child. And I mentioned before failing, I mean, a lot of times parents come in when their kids are having, um, you know, struggles and feel, you know, demoralized because they've been told, told by many people that their kid is bad or their kid is, you know, something's wrong with them or they're not smart enough or whatever. And so just imagine the weight that's on a parent who's meeting you for the first time to tell you that not only I'm not, I'm not doing a good job as a parent, that's how they feel. I don't think that's the case, but not only am I not doing what I think I should be doing, but my child is not succeeding. Uh, and so helping families feel like helping parents feel like our caregivers because we have to be inclusive because some people don't have their biological parents with them. Uh, but um, just helping them feel that I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to help you. And if I can't help you, I'm going to try to find someone who can. Yeah, that's very important. What does a typical day look like for you? So, uh, like I said before, I'm a community psychiatrist. I had a very interesting day today. Uh, so typically uh, I do uh, my clinical work is going to uh, people's homes. So I am considered a community psychiatrist that works for a assertive, assertive community uh, treatment program. We call it PAC. And what we do is we go to people's homes uh, and we provide psychiatric services and and medication management in addition to counseling. Mm. And so if you can imagine today, I was driving in Baltimore and I got a flat <laughs> in front of someone's house. Luckily I was able to get to their home and then go inside and do the treatment and then go and call a tow company <laughs> to help me with my car. But uh, engaging the community means you go to people's homes and you see how they live and you begin to see what their challenges may be. I mean, uh, interesting enough, I was out with the towing truck and one of my, my patients, he's 16 year old, came out and was uh, was willing to help me to stay out there because the community he lived in is not a necessarily safe community. Uh, I mean, there there you can see the drug activity across the street from where I'm coming to visit him in his home. So I really like my job, but I think sometimes uh, it gives me a better appreciation for the challenges that young people have to face in their communities just to be healthy. Yeah. What does call look like for you? So I'm lucky that I'm no longer a resident or a fellow <laughs> or even a medical student. You know, I, I get, I do have call uh, for me. Call is, you know, typically supervising medical students and residents uh, when they're, call to see, you know, difficult cases, uh, particularly in our inpatient or our, uh, emergency room settings. Uh, and generally you see just about everything. You may see a youth who, uh, who's been abused physically or sexually, or you may see someone who has had a meltdown, maybe became destructive or aggressive at home. And, you know, mom called the cops and the cops brought them to the emergency room to be evaluated. And it may be the first time they've ha actually had psychiatric services or seen a psychiatrist. 
so I see the gambit. Uh, I mean, I even see kids who have organic things going on that's not necessarily uh, for psychiatric reasons, but some metabolic problem. Uh, however, because they're having behavioral disturbances, psychiatry is called to uh, to assist in managing their behaviors while they're getting their medical treatment. Yeah. What does the the training path look like to become a child and adolescent psychiatrist? It varies. I mean, I meet people who like went into surgery and then decided, oh, I'm not interested in pursuing this. And so I'll, you know, do residency in psychiatry. But typically, if you take the traditional route, you know, you go to medical school and after medical school, you you apply to residency programs through uh, the match process, which is a national uh, kind of s- scary event for many <laughs> medical students. But most people match into the programs they like uh, during that match process. You get to interview, uh, you know, potential residency programs and they get to interview you. I always tell medical students that you're interviewing them too. Like you don't want to go up, go to a place, for instance, if you are a minority, you're interested in health disparities and BIPOC communities and go to a place where it's typically not a lot of uh, diverse faculty or diverse, you know, interests. Uh, Then you may not get that experience that you're looking for to be the type of doctor that you want to practice in the way you want to practice. But typically, you know, it takes a while to, um, go through the process of figuring out which residency program you like. But once you decide psychiatry, uh, you go through uh, the psychiatry residency program. That's typically four years if you're just interested in general psychiatry, uh, which is basically the bread and butter of psychiatry. Most people are general psychiatrists and they can practice with children and adolescents or practice with geriatric adults or the gambit, addiction psychiatry, whatever, forensics. And you may want to specialize. So if you're interested in specializing in a particular field in psychiatry, given it be forensics or child and adolescent psychiatry or addictions or gosh, what else? Um, what did I say? Uh, yeah, it's just a bunch of different options. Community psychiatry and uh, public psychiatry is actually uh, a fellowship program. It's not uh, accredited in terms of getting board certification, but it is also an option. Uh, many people decide in their third year of residency, general psychiatry to uh, go into child adolescent psychiatry, which is an additional two years. So you can, what they call uh, fast track into child adolescent psychiatry and complete your training in five years, uh, which is what I did mm. um, because I knew I wanted to do pediatric patients, see yeah. pediatric patients. Do you feel like you have enough time for life outside of the hospital and all of your clinical duties? Ask me today, I would say, <laughs> yeah, you know, even though I had a flat tire, I was still able to rush home and do this interview uh, at the end of the day. Uh, but there are days where, you, you know, you have some late hours, you know, maybe somebody come in in crisis and you're on call and, you know, you have to manage that before you go home. But typically speaking, I mean, it's a nine to five for uh, some psychiatrists, particularly those who work in community set- settings where the clinics close at 430 or five. Uh, but if you're an academic psychiatry, it may vary from like eight to seven, depending on what you do in academic psychiatry. Uh, and if you have your own private practice, you can make your own hours. So it really is completely up to you. A psychiatry is a field that has so many options. I know people who uh, do, uh, you know, mostly 
you know, clinical work. And then I know some people who do mostly administrative work. Some people do a gambit of clinical and administrative. Uh, there are some people who actually decide to use their psychiatry background to consult for films and consult for other. So it's just a lot of things that you can do in your career. So I, I tell people not to be discouraged about your options because the options for psychiatry is endless in, in, a, in, a, in a many ways. Yeah. That's that's exciting. That that is helpful for students who maybe feel like they they don't want to get sucked into the same thing day in and day out. That it gives you lots of flexibility. Right now, what as a child and adolescent psychiatrist, can you further subspecialize with official training or unofficial training? Can you further sub? Uh, yes, you can. So, if you're a child psychiatrist, but you're really interested in what we call infant mental health. There is extra training you can do just to work with those youth at zero to five. If you're a child and a psychiatrist, but you say, hey, I'm really interested in adolescence and I am particularly interested in addiction, uh, addictions and uh, in, in addiction medicine. And you want to work with youth who may have uh, substance use disorder or just have problematic substance use then you get an opportunity to either train in addictions. You don't have to do that if you're a psychiatrist because you, at that point uh, you would probably have had exposure to addiction medicine and you could, you know, study on your own and work underneath uh, someone who has additional training so you can become an expert. Uh, you know, you also maybe want somebody who's interested in youth who's been detained in juvenile detention centers or who've had issues with, um, you know, uh, problematic, you know, behaviors and uh, require, you know, other systems involved, such as Department of Social Services or Department of Juvenile Services. And you say, well, I would really like to do forensic uh, work. Uh, There's also room for forensic work in terms of, uh, you know, you know, evaluations for uh, youth who may have difficult circumstances where their parents may be engaged with legal systems and things like that. And so there's a lot of opportunity in uh, childless and psychiatry outside of the bread and butter ADHD management or, you know, depression and uh, anxiety. We have uh, we have psychiatrists who works just for uh, youth who have uh, severe mental illness like schizophrenia. So our very transitional age youth who develop schizophrenia or our early onset uh, psychosis. Uh, so you can pick whatever you want, basically. Yeah. Uh, and many child psychiatrists do everything. I mean, many child psychiatrists may have practice in one area and then they say, well, you know, that's a little too demanding and I want to try something else. And so you have the opportunity to move around if you want to. Nice. That's exciting. What do you wish, uh, the primary care docs out there knew about what you're doing day in and day out as a child and adolescent psychiatrist, uh, help, help them take care of their patients and help you better? I would imagine that pediatricians feel this way, but I think um, probably because of the way medicine is set up and so much red tape with, I don't know, just from keeping your documentation to making sure, make sure that people get, you know, the proper care and insurance paid for it. Uh, Oftentimes I, I think it's forgotten how much preventative medicine uh, is the main that should be mainstay for kids, meaning, you know, if a pediatrician see a kid for the first time and notice some challenges in the family, maybe not even with the kid, but just challenges in the family, that is the time to intervene. And that intervention may not only affect that, that young person's life that's your patient, but it may change the trajectory of the family. Right. 
meaning if that parent got the mental health treatment they needed or if their if that parent has support for their child who has a developmental disorder or educational resources, it may uh, prevent other things. So I always say that preventive medicine prevents the cascade of events that happen when things go untreated. Um, uh, it's also an opportunity to look at some of the social determinants of mental health, such as exposure to lead, that can lead to intellectual disabilities uh, and exposure to drugs and alcohol in utero. Uh, those things that I think pediatricians do and oftentimes document, but don't all, always hook people into services that can prevent the negative outcomes that's related to things that's beyond the control of families. How much, and we talked earlier about as a psychiatrist taking care of, especially a child and adolescent psychiatrist, taking care of the kids, but also the family, the community, et cetera. Now you're talking about social determinants of mental health. And now it's just like, it, it, it feels like you're taking on the world. How do you, how do you handle that? Well, you know, advocacy is a big thing. I, I don't think that a psychiatrist can do it alone. I don't think that a pediatrician can do it alone. I think we have been taught as physicians to, I guess, stay in our lane, which is, you know, just focus on the individual patient, illness, that sort of trajectory. But we understand now a lot more about population health and that you can look at someone's zip code and determine how long they live. You know, no doctor feels good knowing that. And knowing that information means that we have these opportunities to advocate for our profession, you know, by joining organized medicine and really, you know, helping politicians understand what resources as needed in the communities. Uh, we have opportunities to talk to our health systems and think about green spaces and think about, you know, healthy food and childhood obesity and, you know, the gambit. It You can't do it by yourself, though. You definitely need, you know, people who are interested in engaging in communities in a way that's felt, that feels different than the traditional way we've been taught to practice medicine. Uh, but I don't feel burdened by that. I feel like I'm a citizen of the world. And so climate change is an issue for kids. So why wouldn't I speak out about climate change? Why wouldn't I speak out about racism and the effects of mental health related to racism or any other social issue? Uh, so I think as we become more proficient in understanding that we play a role, not the only role, but we play a role in engaging communities about that. I mean, as a doctor, I consider myself pretty privileged. When I tell people that there is an issue, people listen. Sometimes my patients don't get that same um, ability. They don't, they can't reach their politicians and say, hey, you know, my water is not so great or, you know, there's crime right in front of my house and I can't walk out of my door. But a doctor saying that has a lot more weight. So I feel responsible. I'm not going to say it's to each person to decide what what they feel comfortable doing. And I can't judge that, but I hope that we're creating doctors who are also playing a big part in advocacy and health equity. Yeah. I think, I think it's a huge part, hopefully of the future. How, how would you like to see, this is completely random off topic, but how would you like to see advocacy be included in the medical school curriculum? From day one. I mean, I just think from day one, it shouldn't be a side course. It should be embedded in the curriculum in a way where uh, people understand more about how healthcare systems work from the 
perspective of billing, <laughs> from the perspective of insurance and payers, from the perspective of hospital systems and their mission or values, uh, from the perspective of communities and what resources are available. I just think that medical students today, particularly how much they pay to go to medical school, <laughs> deserve to finish medical school feeling, feeling equipped to address what I think is a, oh my gosh, when I, if I had known what I knew, what I know now, I don't know if I would have went to medical school. It is very challenging to practice medicine unless you are fully armed. Otherwise you'll just become a bitter burned out doctor who quit early in the game, (laughs) you know? Uh, So I do think it requires a, a really look at, you know, what particularly young medical students are asking for I am very excited about the future of medicine. And the reason why I'm excited, because we have an invigorated group of young people who are really, really engaging with their medical schools around these issues. Uh, Whereas when I was a student, particularly having went to medical school at Tulane, which was uh, unfortunately we had Hurricane Katrina and I was a fourth year medical student when Hurricane Katrina uh, hit New Orleans and devastated. I mean, devastated the communities. And I remember thinking, wow, like what is going to happen to my patients? Where are they, where are they going to go? They don't have cars. They can't get out of the city. And we saw those buses that was sitting underneath these, um, you know, highways uh, in New Orleans. It was like, why didn't the city of New Orleans have a way to get people out of the community? Uh, And that made me think that maybe it was my responsibility or maybe it was the responsibility of doctors to really engage with politicians about what patients need uh, to stay safe. You know, people went uh, weeks and weeks at a time without medications for diabetes. And uh, unfortunately, some people had you know amputations and things because they had poorly controlled diabetes during that time. And so it's just a really challenging situation to be in as a medical student. Uh, but in some ways, I'm happy I had that experience because it helped me understand what my role can be. I go to bed at night sleeping pretty perfectly just hmm. because I know I do my part and I just hope that everybody else will do theirs also. Yeah. All right. Back, back, back on topic. Uh, I, I love that topic. So that's, that's great. Thanks for going no down problem. that path I with me. Like the question, so thank you. <laughs> um, what do you know now that you wish you knew before going into to child and adolescent psychiatry? Uh, okay. I'll take it on a personal level. I think I, I wish I had known that it's okay to take breaks, Mm. that it's okay to, uh, ask for help. It's okay to be transparent about that. Uh, I think, you know, we're taught to be experts and so an expert doesn't have problems. Right. (laughs) And so when life challenges happen, I think it's really important for medical students to feel comfortable asking for help or, if you're not going to get the help from the people that's supposed to be helping you, take that help for yourself. And, and that means if you're feeling tired and you're feeling burned out, take a break. You know, breaks are necessary. Have a vacation sometimes, you know. Um, but also, you know, I wish someone had told me that all the worry I had about student loan debt would it, would it be okay? You know, that it would eventually, uh, well, that was actually told to me by my mom, but you know, you don't believe your parents. Uh, <laughs> but all the worry I had about student loan debt is it's real. Student loan debt is real. But I also think that I live a better life than most people. Uh, 
And so I'm okay. And I think that that worry that you have when you're younger, particularly if you come from my background, can prevent you from exploring and doing things. Uh, Take advantage of the time you have in medical school if you're a a person from a BIPOC community to travel. Like if they have those opportunities to go to Cuba or Haiti or Africa or wherever, like take advantage of it. Don't worry about, you know, getting another job so you can pay off some more money to to be miserable. Uh, (laughs) You know, this is the time in your life where you get to learn not just about medicine, but about yourself and about what type of doctor you want to be and take advantage of your youth. Don't waste it worrying about things that will take care of itself. I think that's what I will say to medical students today. Nice. It's important. Um, What do you like the most about being a child and adolescent psychiatrist? The kids. (laughs) I love, I mean, you know, kids are so resilient and they're funny and they teach you things about life that you just don't get Otherwise, um, even in this, even with the sickest kids, with the most horrendous stories, you can see that glimmer of hope that you don't always see with adults. So uh, I think kids remind me that it's really important to stay youthful. And uh, that's what keep me going. What do you like the least? The parents, no, <laughs> okay. uh, billing, like charting. <laughs> what I like the least is systems that is not designed for you. Yeah. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, we understand that kids have to get their education, but if you have 30 people in your classroom and it's hot and the, you know, AC doesn't work and you have ADHD, then it's like a worst nightmare. <laughs> you know, when someone is telling you over and over again to sit down, but you're not comfortable. Uh, and those are easy fixes. But oftentimes what happens is the kid is labeled and, you know, it's a spiraling thing where you get a kid who used to be happy about going to school and they don't like to go to school anymore because of these zero tolerance of pr- practices of suspending and expelling kids for misbehaving. Um, I, you know, maybe I'm a, a sympathetic uh, child psychiatrist, but I wish that we could change systems better so we can be creative about that every kid doesn't learn the same way. And because kids learn differently, we have to do different things. And I think that many schools are getting that, particularly schools who are practicing trauma-informed care approaches uh, and culturally responsive care. Uh, I'm happy for the universities that I'm affiliated with who make that a priority and uh, school-based mental health programs. But more than anything, what I hate most about child psychiatry is battling systems to get it right uh, so we don't lose a kid's uh, opportunity. Amen to that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If you had to do it all over again, would you still be where you're at? Hmm. I don't know. Um, You know, I have an interesting personal journey of having uh, lost my mother to cancer. I think if I had known what I know now, it would have distracted me. Uh, So I probably would have ended up where I am now, but I think it would have been difficult. And so, yeah, I mean, we can't predict the future or go back in the past and change anything, but I think I am where I'm I'm meant to be. And I definitely think my steps in some way was ordered. So yeah, I think if I had to do it all over again, I'd do the same thing. And if I could predict the future and only thing I would do about the past is, like I said, go have more vacations. 
<laughs> Very exciting. For the the community listening to this, how could they potentially get involved with everything that you're up to? So one of the things that I think I'm really passionate about is mentorship and sponsorship. You know, ideally speaking, I don't think I have a lot of resources, but I definitely can lend from my experience as an educator, as a clinician, uh, to help people who are interested in paving their own way in medicine. Uh, so, you know, I would like to be, you know, helpful in that way. And so what I did was create a, uh, a health equity firm to really engage people in medicine, but also people who are in communities as community leaders to understand how do, how you become a justice and diversity and health equity, uh, I guess, expert or champion. Uh, so I, I guess that's my contribution. I'm not sure if that, you know, is the answer you're looking for, but I think mentorship is such a valuable part of uh, diversifying uh, healthcare, but also diversifying other fields mm-hmm. um, that will play a huge part in addressing social determinants of mental health and also health disparities and health inequities, especially health inequities. Yeah. Awesome. Any last words of wisdom for the student listening to this? I hope I answered your questions and um, you know, if you're interested in learning more about what I do, you can look me up at Dr. Kim Answers uh, with my Twitter and Instagram. Or if you're just interested in learning more about how to be a Jedi expert, you can look me up at BHETC. It's BHETCgroup.com. Uh, that is my uh, web address. And I look forward to uh, you guys figuring out what you want to do with your career. Child and adolescent psychiatry is definitely an exciting thing. And in closing, I will share something with you that's been a huge inspiration to me. Uh, this person is actually no longer living, but was a huge, uh, huge advocate for mental health, particularly for African-Americans. His name is Dr. Chester Pierce. You should look him up because he, because he coined the term microaggressions, but he did a lot of other important work, including being a consultant for Sesame Street. And if anybody knows, Sesame Street is all about child and adolescent uh, mental health and behavioral health and education. Uh, So uh, that person is a huge inspiration to black psychiatrists, but many psychiatrists. He actually uh, has an award uh, that he receives every year, uh, an award that's in his honor that someone gets every year for health equity. Anyways, I went on a tangent. Just go into child psychiatry and look me up if you're interested. All right, there you have it again, Dr. Kimberly Gordon-Achebe, child and adolescent psychiatrist who's also doing a lot of amazing things outside of psychiatry, trying to improve what healthcare looks like in the future. Go check out all the links that we talked about in the episode, and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you get these for free every week. Have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media.